In the Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 73, February 2024. The American Dialect Society. A conversation with Betsy Evans. Hello, Paul Meyer here. This past month, I've been dialect coaching a remarkable play, The Lehman Trilogy. It tells the story of the rise and fall of Lehman Brothers, the financial empire. Three actors playing 50 characters, a dialect coach's dream. At the heart of it is the question, what kind of accent might Henry Lehman and his brothers, 1851 Jewish immigrants from Bavaria to Alabama, have had when speaking English? I love those historical and geographical conundrums. The Lehman Trilogy is playing at the Florida Studio Theatre in Sarasota through March 29th. After my last podcast, episode number 72, with Victor Boucher, Floyd Kennedy, an idea editor, wrote to say, Thank you, Paul. What a great interview. How I wish I had known about Victor Boucher's work when I was writing up my dissertation, my, quote, theory of the voice in performance, end quote. This is what I was trying to get at in an attempt to explain the difference between the written word and the spoken word. I knew what I meant, but I didn't know there was a whole science around it. (laughs) Thanks, Floyd. Me too. Ready for our quiz? Guess that accent? Last time I played this clip from the Idea Archive and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. A lot of berry picking for winter. We used to go into in the fall time after the canners and things closed and we used to uh, pick what you called negun, the little uh, berries that kind of grow off the ground like strawberries and uh, they kind of look like salmon berries but they're red, real deep red and real a taste all its own. You don't, you can't get those in. What do you think? If you guessed Alaska, well done, yes. It was Ideas Alaska One, contributed by Ideas Senior Editor Tanara Marshall. Tanara has contributed many First Nations Native American speakers. This subject, from Juneau, is a member of the Tlingit tribe. Thanks again, Tanara. To learn more about the speaker, go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com, then North America, then the United States, and then Alaska. Now this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? Once when when I was in um, lower school, the town got its first lights in the main road. And it was a big event for this little town that finally we get a light. So now we have a red light when we drive to school. What's your guess? Get the answer next time. Oh yes, if you aren't listening to me on paulmeyer.com, Switch over now. Select In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services menu tab, then click episode number 73. You'll find extras there not available on any other podcast channel. My guest this month is Betsy Evans, Professor of Linguistics at the University of Washington in Seattle. She's the new Executive Director of the American Dialect Society. So welcome, Betsy, to In a Manner of Speaking. Thank you for the invitation. First of all, congratulations on your new appointment, Executive Director of the American Dialect Society. Congratulations. Do you have big plans for your term of office? 
Thank you. I'm very excited about it. I've been a member in the society since I was a student, so it's about time that I started contributing even more than I have in the past. But I would say our main thing at the moment is membership. We're all volunteers doing this work, and yes. we'd really like to invite everybody to become a member of the American Dialect Society. And it's it's pretty cheap, $70 for individual memberships and 30 bucks for students. Not a bad deal considering you get access to all of our publications for that small sum, including our journal, back issues, and our annual monograph. I must confess that after all these years, I'm still not a member, but I'm going to put that right. And I encourage all my listeners to join too. So you can look forward to at least one more member of the American Thank Dialect you. Society coming up this week. We welcome you. So the American Dialect Society was founded more than a century ago. What year was it founded in, in fact? 1889. My goodness, a venerable institution. Can you sum mm -hmm. up its mission or is it too varied in scope to, uh, to summarize easily? Well, I would say broadly we're interested in the study of language in North America and, and sort of the name American Dialect Society hopefully doesn't throw people off into thinking that we're only interested in English because, in fact, we're interested in sort of all languages that are used in North America, Canada, and all kinds of languages and varieties because they all come together. So it's really the study of, of language in, in North America for the most part. But we cast a wide net in terms of what we publish and what people present at the annual conference. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see you just had your annual conference in New York. 21 different papers delivered. What topics were on delegates' minds? What's cutting edge in the world of American dialect study? We were thinking a lot about inclusivity and uh, minoritized languages. Part of that is because we had a panel on what we call needed research, which is the title of our monograph this year. Every 10 years, we'll kind of kick back and think, what do we need to be doing in the future? And so one of the things that has been pointed out is more information on different varieties of English and other varieties of language that influence English mm -hmm. or that English influences. In particular, there were, there were many papers about African-American language from regional identity to changes in particular features. It's terrific. Doug Honorov. Do you know Doug Honorov? He's a member and has been yes. directing. He's been directing me to uh, precisely that paper, what's on people's minds for the for the future, for the next 10 years. So. Yeah, that just came out. In fact, I just got a copy of it on my desk this week. So mm. you should be able to access that online, Yeah, maybe in a week. Good, good. I'll be sure to do that and get that through my membership, my new membership. Doug is one of the three authors of Comma Get Secure, our venerable elicitation passage on ideas. Mm -hmm. So you've come across his work in that regard. Attitudes and perceptions of language variation. Attitudes and perceptions of language variation. You list as, as your own major research interest. Betsy, does this boil down to, I trust, believe, and like people who talk like me and don't trust, believe, or like people who don't talk like me? Or is that way too simplistic? I would say it's both. Essentially, attitudes and perception of language variation can be about people who do sound like me, but also people who don't sound like me. It's essentially, you know, how do people understand the linguistic variation that they hear and what kind of social associations do they attach to what they hear? Yes. 
We often have paradoxical and contradictory attitudes to the same accents, in, perhaps in the mouths of different speakers of, of that accent, negative and positive attitudes. Am I right? Have you found that in your research? That is absolutely correct. We find that, especially in the case of dialects that are marginalized, so in the United States, we could think of a case like Southern American English, you find that people, on the one hand, understand that their dialect is not seen as particularly correct or standard. Mm-hmm. And so they are aware of the sort of marginalization and you know stigmatization of their dialect, but at the same time, they feel very proud of it. So they have these kind of seemingly conflicting ideas. And we see that pan out in the research in terms of what we call status and solidarity. A variety that doesn't have a lot of status might often be perceived as having strong solidarity in that, you know, the people who use it find it very important to them for identity purposes or, you know, group membership. Yeah, that's in looking at it from the speaker's point of view. And I've encountered lots of uh, paradoxical and contradictory attitudes to the listeners to, you know, they, they, they can switch from a negative outlook on an accent to a positive one. Uh, it's, have you found that too? I'm trying to think of an example, and I can't think of one, but that that is completely consistent with what we know about cognitive processing, that people can, you know, have a first impression and then sort of rethink it and come up with a different interpretation. So context has a lot to do with a person's judgment in the end. Let's say a person bumps into somebody in an elevator and they use a variety that sounds very Southern to them and the listener is not, you know, not from the South and they might think, oh, and have a particular set of maybe negative, which is, it's very often negative. People have negative perceptions of Southern American English, but maybe in another context, the same person, maybe they're on a date with somebody who they really want to impress and they're really interested in developing a relationship with them and they have a Southern accent. They might have a completely different reaction to that accent in that context. So people can be very sort of almost, you might say, duplicitous in the way that they react to different dialects. And the speakers of those dialects often in full cognizance of that split of opinion can play into it. For instance, you'll find this interesting, I'm sure. I'm coaching the Lehman Trilogy, which is the story of the rise and fall of the Lehman Brothers from 1850, when three Bavarian Jewish brothers emigrated from Bavaria to Alabama, through to the collapse of that venerable company in the crash of 2008, I think it was. And I've got a cast. This is at the uh, the Florida Studio Theater. The show will be open by the time listeners are listening to this podcast. And I've got one African-American cast member among the three, and among them, 50 different characters that he plays. is someone from Mississippi. And he's in the the center of the American financial district in New York and knows full well when he can play his Southern accent to advantage and when he needs to mute it. And he can play off those two different attitudes towards. So in my coaching of this this actor, he fully realized that and uh, initiated that kind of code switching in his portrayal of that Southern Mississippi Black American, full aware of the uh, duality of those opinions. Yeah. 
That's very true. And that's a great example of that kind of thing. But especially speakers of marginalized dialects that people talk about a lot, they're very aware of the perceptions and many people develop a skill of, as you say, code switching. This is one of the things that comes up in our work in linguistic bias. There was a really interesting research done by Nicole Halliday, and they looked at Black students in the university context and this amount of code switching that they have to do in the university context, as you can imagine, you know, the predominant sort of mainstream English is certainly, it's not exactly similar to Black English. And so these students feel like they have to code switch in order to impress their teachers and mm-hmm. get along with students, especially if they're in an institution like like University of Washington, which has a high percentage of white students. Mm-hmm. They call this sociolinguistic labor because... It is the work that they have to do to get listeners to take them seriously. I'm sure that's a universal phenomenon. I, I can relate to it myself. Growing <laughs> up in England, I, you know, I was had, had pressure to speak received pronunciation, but I, you know, I also mingled with uh, a lot of people who, who had Cockney accents, and I learned to uh, to code switch between the two depending on the on the social context. You know, I did a lot of construction work as a mm. summer summer labourer. From yes. a university, so you know, I would get uh, terribly teased if I if I came onto the building site and uh, and and spoke in my in my received pronunciation. So you know, I I learned to go down scale with it and uh, get by, so as not to draw attention to myself, so so that my accent wasn't an issue all the time. And I think all over the world, people do that consciously or or unconsciously. Don't you think? Exactly. When it becomes a liability, and if you have the the skill set to do that. I often liken it to a sort of your linguistic set of tools. If you have those tools in your toolbox, you're going to use them. So I lived in Wales for six years. Did you? And yeah, I did. And it was wonderful. And But I did find myself trying hard to not acquire, I don't know, Welsh English or, you know, a, mm-hmm. like English accent because it would seem really for me, I felt like I'm, you know, I'll seem like a poser kind of if I, yes. you know, this American starts acquiring this British accent. But <laughs> I had to, in what we call accommodate in certain yes. ways in, with regard to lexical items, because people didn't understand me when I asked for the restroom. So, you know, I had yes. to say loo or uh, toilet or something else. Yes, yes. And the other interesting fact is as hard as I tried to not acquire aspects of the English there, I did anyway, because when I came to the University of Washington, I came from there to the University of Washington. And when I interviewed, the graduate students called me the Welsh lady, (laughs) you know, because they knew I was from Wales, but also I had picked up something or other that triggered in their mind an accent. Yes. So... Yes. So was this Swansea, Cardiff, Aberystwyth? Cardiff. I was a a, sort of a postdoc at Cardiff University. Were you doing work on Welsh English? Welsh? Um, no, I tried hard to learn Welsh, um, but there just wasn't enough. Honestly, not enough people speaking Welsh in Cardiff. You know, I not, really would have not had in to be Cardiff. Living, no, yeah, no. I had to be living in North Wales to kind of be able to use it every day. I mean, we were learning it, but like you know, you go to the post office and like you couldn't try to really converse with people in Welsh because they didn't really speak it. Even though you know, the all the signs were in Welsh, and you know the the um, automated messages about you know go to window three, please, were in Bilingual. Welsh and English. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but you couldn't really 
converse with, you know, clerks at Marks and Spencer or wherever you went in Welsh. It wasn't it wasn't super easy. So I didn't get to use it that much. And so I didn't really learn it. Yeah, I was working in the Center for Language and Communication at Cardiff University, and we were doing attitudinal work, looking at mm-hmm. attitudes. The grant was about globalization. So I was one of seven people hired on to a big grant about language and globalization. Yeah, and of course, there's a long, long history of, you know, the Celts retreated to the hills of Wales, you know, when the, the country was overrun by invaders. Yep. Yep. Lot, lots of history of that. So perceptual dialectology, how would you explain that to the non-specialist? I would say perceptual dialectology is a sort of special way of studying attitudes and perceptions and language variation through the eyes of the user's the listeners, the speakers who aren't professionals. So mm-hmm. it's into what we call folk linguistics. We're interested in what non-linguists think about language. And in particular, perceptual dialectology relates that to space and region. And so very often we're asking people, one typical way we do this is we'll hand somebody a map of a particular state or region or country and we'll say, Tell us on this map where people speak differently or what do you think of the language that people use in this region or that region? It's a sort of indirect window into people's perceptions and attitudes about the people who use those varieties. I bet the leaders of political campaigns are very interested in what you have to tell them. Maybe. I don't know. They don't seem to ask us so much. I mean, you can guess, right, living in the United States for as long as you have and knowing what you know about language and varieties of language, you can guess what people say. For example, if you give them a map of the United States, they're going to circle the South and say, "Okay, this place is different. Then we sort of further push them and say, well, what would you call that way that they talk or what can you say about that way of talking in that region? And so we get a lot of details about linguistic details. For example, people will say, well, they say y'all, right? And so Mm -hmm. that's a kind of a lexical kind of pronoun aspect of language that we come to understand that people notice and that they see as different. They might talk about pronunciations like I'm not fungization and and they say, hi, y'all. We learn about what people hear as different. Mm -hmm. And so from a linguistic point of view, that's very interesting. What do people notice? And then the next step is, what do they think about it? So, Mm -hmm. you know, we do some descriptive stuff, but then we're also interested in, okay, well, what do you think of it? Exactly. Yeah, that's something that a film and theatre dialect coach, of course, is very cognizant of it. Actors, of course, like anyone else, so notice the gross variations and often accentuate what you might call the gross differences but don't do the subtleties when they're imitating that accent. So human nature to notice the big differences. Absolutely. You know, and we're still kind of like working on research on what do people notice? How much non-roticity is enough non-roticity for a person to notice it? Yes. Um, And this is, you know, a very fine level of detail just for the listener who may not know, uh, we're talking here about the uh, the gradation from burn to burn to burn to burn to burn, right? The non-rosticity of, of that. Exactly. The R exactly. coloration. Indeed. Colloquially, people often talk about R dropping, 
for example. Mm -hmm. um, and so people's perceptions of R-dropping, some of my students did some work in New England. And where do people perceive the so-called R-dropping happens? And what do they think of it? Very interesting, especially when you can break down the respondents based on how long they've been living there. So one of my students, Nicole Chartier, found that the sort of newer migrants, they had different perceptions of where lack of roticity or R dropping is happening in New England than the people who've been there forever. Because the people who've been there forever, they know a little bit more. And, and they also do this, a little bit of this duplicitousness that we were talking about before, right? Because non-roticity in New England is stigmatized. They recognize that and they say, well, you know, we have non-roticity, but we're hardy, loyal, down-to-earth people or something. You know, they'll have yes. some kind of solidarity kinds of descriptions about what it is about. And so they sort of balance that marginalization or stigmatization with some positive factors. Indeed, indeed. Changing the subject completely, uh, you dropped a bit of a bombshell on me, Betsy, <laughs> earlier in our correspondence. <laughs> You told me that linguists have been, quote, skeptical of the possibility of anyone having complete linguistic control of two different dialects. And you've done some science on this, but there are a lot of actors and dialect coaches out there who listen to this podcast and their work is predicated on the belief or at least the hope that being credible in many different accents and dialects is achievable, difficult, challenging, but not impossible. So my question to you is bilingualism isn't doubted. So why would bidialectism be doubted? Tell me the worst. Well, this is the question I had. And I have to say, I was a, a graduate student at the time that I did this research. And I asked my advisor, Dennis Preston, I said, some of these sociolinguists are saying that bidialectalism isn't possible. And I think that the, the core idea is that it's a little bit different from bilingualism. That was the kind of the assumption in the sense that acquiring a command of the low level aspects of a second dialect is very difficult. So for example, you know, you mentioned that sometimes the actors will take advantage of some of the more salient features of a particular dialect, and then they can kind of leave behind some of the others because the salient ones will give a convincing persona in the case of some character in a play or, or in a film. Yes. So the idea is that we're thinking about this low level control of all the features of the dialect. So we thought, well, you know, let's, let's try it out. Let's test it out. And honestly, the other thing that sort of weighs against linguists studying imitation per se is that we spend so much time trying to find so-called natural speech. We want to know what people are doing when they're not being observed and when they're not pretending to be somebody else mm -hmm. historically. Now, that has changed a lot because people have come to understand the great value in studying what people do when they are performing. Things have come a long way. Yeah, after all, performance isn't any longer limited in a in an academic sense, to what happens on a stage or on the screen. We, you know, performance studies, we, we study performance in everywhere it appears in our lives, right? I would say it stems within linguistics. It stems from the idea that some linguists are very interested in, you know, what is the human faculty able to do? And in order to understand that, we want to focus on 
what is a person's kind of natural baseline usage? People sort of, you know, historically turned away from what speakers would do when they're trying to imitate. But that has been superseded at this point. And now we really value what people can do in all kinds of contexts, even when they don't perceive themselves as performing. Right, right. Has there been a, a, a scientific study of actors pretending and to, to see if they get away with it or can convince the listener who has no idea whether they're acting or not? Has there been any study of of the success rate of people imitating other accents and passing? I can't think of any, but I, I imagine it has been done. Maybe we could cooperate on a study. Yeah, it would be very interesting. And it would be a little like what I did do in the end with my study, which was like, you know, found a person who technically would have the opportunity to be bi dialectal. So this guy, man, he grew up in Morgantown, West Virginia, but his parents were from Detroit. And if you know Morgantown, it is a university town. And so you have lots and lots of university people combined with local people. And so you have access in theory, you know, being born and raised there, you would presumably have access to both of those dialects and be able to master them because we know that, you know, personal face-to-face contact is the best way to acquire language and acquire a dialect. So poor thing, we strapped him to a microphone and had him read reading passages in his so-called day-to-day voice, which was a very unmarked variety of American English. And then we asked him to read the reading passage in Morgantown Mm -hmm. way of speaking or West Virginia way of speaking. And then I did an acoustic analysis of it. And his performance in both cases were really dead on. Well, his everyday speech was consistent with what, you know, a kind of a classic American vowel quadrangle. I only looked at vowels, I should emphasize. And then his West Virginia imitation was very close to what we call a Southern vowel shift. From a technical point of view, he did very well in terms of reproducing those two varieties or, you know, performing or doing those two varieties. The real test, though, isn't it, Betsy, is what would the listener exposed to the two recordings say was the guy's natural accent? You know, when is he pretending? When is he not pretending? Or is he pretending on both or on whatever? Right. Exactly. I'm so glad you asked that question because that was our next step. Okay. (laughs) We put together what we call a matched guys test. And so basically that means we put a bunch of voices together for listeners to listen to and then rate on a scale. And in this case, the scale was, I'm sure this person was born in West Virginia all the way to, no, I'm 100% sure this person wasn't born in West Virginia. Okay, okay. Okay. And how because you... you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter how acoustically correct you are. If nobody believes it, then what's the point? And so this is what happened. And his imitation of West Virginia speech wasn't significantly scored significantly different from the voice that was considered to be the most, they were the most sure was from West Virginia. So he came into second place. So what we did was ask West Virginia, and it was students at West Virginia University, listen to these voices and tell us whether you think they were born in West Virginia or not. Right. And in the end, the imitator was perceived as being as likely to be from West Virginia as a speaker who was from Charleston, West Virginia, who got the highest score on yes, definitely from West Virginia. Got it. So his imitation was very convincing. 
Good. Glad to hear it. <laughs> so uh, I'm a proud member of the Voice and Speech Trainers Association, VASTA. Uh-huh. Many of our idea editors are VASTA members. And I told my colleagues in VASTA that you were my guest today and asked them if they had questions for you. Lots of responses. Not all these questions will be in your bailiwick, of course, but Eric Armstrong was interested in the increasing use of the glottal stop in words like certain, important, curtain, shorten, martin. And he says he's heard other preceding sounds only rarely, like beaten and cotton. Now, we're very used to this in British dialects, of course. I want I want a bit of better butter, but not so much in American English. Is, um, is that something you can comment on, Betsy? Well, I'm so glad to have questions <laughs> from your listeners. This is always super fun and exciting for us sociolinguists. I'm not sure because certain important curtains, shorten, martin, they all sound completely unremarkable to me. So I, I looked into this a little bit and I, I was looking at maybe some other variations with a glottal stop that maybe people are thinking of. And there has been lately a lot of talk about the glottal stop plus maybe a little bit of a schwa. So something like mountain. Yes. And mountain. Kitten, yes. Rather than kitten, where you have the syllabic N after the glottal stop. So the glottal stop is doing a lot of different things in different linguistic environments in American English. As far as I could tell, what I found is that the environments, the linguistic environments are different from, that's one thing that distinguishes the American glottal stop usage for T from British English. You wouldn't get city, you wouldn't, you would get a flap. So where you would get a flap like city, you won't get a glottal stop. But it is happening, and even recently as 2015, there was a study about high school age people in Utah. So it's a thing. Mm -hmm. Language is on the march all the time. Amy Stoller asked several questions. She's a New York dialect coach, a very successful one. She was interested in the uh, NG sound. What about NG plus hard G, as in singer and song? And Amy says she used to associate this primarily with old school New York City English, but she says she's heard it in speakers from Cleveland and, and Atlanta. Her question is, is this hard release after NG on the rise? Is it confined to a few regions or more widespread? Well, it is definitely, okay, it's a thing. It's definitely happening. In fact, I did find a recent study on this. In fact, it was at the American Dialect Society meeting a few weeks ago a woman named Lisa Morgan Johnson presented some research on Utah teens using this G variant in ing. And I have also heard it from speakers from Ohio. So it's happening, but I don't know a lot. I don't know if the distribution has been well defined in the United States. But ing and in and in for ing are very popular topics. Uh, Amy also asked her how widespread are the pronunciations of vanilla as vanilla and milk as milk? And what about licorice as licorice? Any responses? I would say vanilla versus vanilla. So the new usage is vanilla instead of vanilla. Yeah, that's yeah, what she's saying. That's what she's yeah. hearing. 
Yes. And and the milk as milk also something that people have been actually studying. And I would say from a linguistic point of view, you probably know that L is a really funny sound. Yes. It causes all kinds of things to happen with preceding vowels. And in fact, the dialect that I come from, we had some really interesting patterns of vocalization where L is concerned, so we don't even pronounce the L in certain linguistic contexts. You're not just talking about chalk, where the L is traditionally no, silent. No. So in the case of my dialect, you have lax vowels like E will tense and become A before L. So oh. a word like sail is sell. Going down the river sailing selling today yeah yeah so l is a kind of yeah as like i said it's it's a it's a sound that has a big effect on the vowels that come before it so that might be the linguistic for milk as okay. milk perhaps adam smith said uh, could betsy talk about the northern city's vowel shift that's been taking place now linking upstate new york all the way to st louis and its continued westward journey can you summarize the uh, Northern City's vowel shift, huge topic, but um, I know that was your dissertation topic, so. The Northern City's vowel shift is the way we describe a linguistic change that's happening in that exact region that Adam pointed out. Buffalo, Cleveland, Detroit, Milwaukee even, and then strangely, and there are good reasons for this, but down into St. Louis. That's a dialectal peculiarity in itself, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little island, isn't it? The suspicion is that it has to do with not migration, but that corridor, people coming into contact through that big corridor. And so this particular change involves the entire vowel system of these speakers. And I'd say they're predominantly white, middle-aged speakers and mostly upper working, lower middle, middle class speakers. And essentially, it's called a chain shift because it involves a, a kind of organized set of changes. And it began to be documented in the 1960s. It essentially involves, firstly, as far as we understand it, the A vowel, the low front vowel, which is A, and it, what we say, raises and sounds more like E, or even in some cases, E, like the town near Detroit is Ann Arbor. Instead of Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor. Yes. And even you're saying Ann Arbor, right? Even that high? Yeah. There was a gentleman named Ian. That was his name. And he would hear Ann Arbor and would think, people, why are they saying my name? <laughs> <laughs> so those were sort of homophonous for the non-local. But what's really interesting now is that it's reversing. Sociolinguists at Michigan State have been tracking this. And even in Rochester and Buffalo, we're finding the younger generation, they're not doing it. Mm -hmm. They don't sound like their parents. And in fact, they're going, I mean, we say reversing it because if, instead of raising ah, they're actually backing ah. The parents would have said man, perhaps, mm -hmm. and they're saying yeah. man. Yes. So okay. instead of dad, you get dad. Yeah, my dad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My dad, my dad. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Mm -hmm. 
it's kind of new. We're still trying to figure out what's going on. But here we come back to perceptual dialectology. We need to ask these folks, what do you think about language around here? Are you noticing anything? You know, mm. I mean, just try to find out, is there some, you know, social reason that we can find that would trigger this reversal? And it's very dramatically fast in terms of, you know, linguistic change. That's pretty quick. It's like lightning, isn't it? A yeah. generation that's very unusual. Okay. So let's hope that that's enough to whet Adam's appetite for further reading. Kirby Wall asked about the STR consonant clusters shift from str to str, as in strict and strong, strict and strong, uh, and the pronunciation of both as both. With, with almost an intrusive L, perhaps. And uh, she was interested in the instability in the strut set, so that um, adult, she hears people saying adult, and ultimate as ultimate. I've certainly heard that myself. Any quick one or more of those? Any one of them are fascinating. I think that the palatalization of stra as stra I noticed that myself. I remember watching um, the Stephen, Stephen Colbert on television and I was like, what is he doing? And then I started looking, you know, looking around and it is a thing. It's fairly widespread and even not just the United States, but also uh, New England and Great Britain. You find this? Yeah. I had a couple of ones for you. Quite a long list, but I'll shorten it here on the fly. I was interested in something I've heard I guess for the last 15 years, maybe it's, I just didn't notice it earlier, but, or maybe it wasn't there. I wish I would have gone versus I wish I had gone. It seems to me as if I wish I would have, or even I wish I would of, <laughs> yeah. is now much more mainstream and gaining traction. If, if I was a grammarian, I'd be able to name those verb tenses. Any thoughts mm -hmm. on I wish I would have versus I wish I had? You've piqued my interest in this because I haven't noticed it, but it's certainly, you know, in speech, I wish I would have. I'm not interested in the contraction so much as would have for had. I would have, I wish I would have, meaning I wish I had. I wish, I'd, mm -hmm. I wish I would have gone to the party versus I wish I'd gone to the party. I wonder, and, you know, we should, we should look into it, if there is some slight meaning difference for the speaker. That would be hmm. something that, as a linguist, I would say, hmm, let's find out if they mean something slightly different. Because we do have, you know, in Southern American speech, what we call double modals. So I might could go mm -hmm. instead of I might go. And I might could go has a slightly different meaning than I might go. Uh, how about the development of Southern American English? We talked a lot about that. Do you know when Americans from the South started saying time on my hands is time on my hands? Some really good linguists have done a lot of research on this, and I, I'm going to rely on their knowledge here. But it appears that about approximately 1875, this feature became more prominent. And by 1945, it was kind of the norm. So mm -hmm. this is according to um, Kirk Hazen, who was a well-known sociolinguist looking at Southern. Spell his name. K-I-R-K. H-A-Z-E-N. He has actually just retired. He's Professor Emeritus from West Virginia University, and he's done a lot of work on Appalachian English, and he's a super smart scholar. Terrific. 
Last one I'm going to ask you about is one I've just now come across. J-A-W-N. John, I guess. I don't know. And it's alleged to be native to Philadelphia. Have you any insight into that word? This just come across my transom? It really looks like it's just a pronoun or a noun. So something like these Johns are expensive. Part of Philly speech, Philadelphia speech. Some people have found it um, on Twitter recently. And so it is could be something, you know, that people use as a marker of identification of mm -hmm. being from Philly, because at the moment it seems like it is a Philly thing. Just a simple pronoun. Yeah, but it leaves many of us scratching our heads because, wait, how do you use that? What is it? But for those people in Philly who are using it, it seems normal and natural. Mm -hmm. But I often confuse that with uh, what we call Johnning, which is J-O-N-I-N-G, which is another word for uh, what we call sort of exchanging ritual insults in black culture. Okay. Um, like playing the dozens is kind of an old timey term for that, but that's in DC. So I don't think, I'm not sure that they're related, but they might be. We could so easily cover some of the same territory that I covered in my conversation with Joan Hall of the Dictionary of American Regional English. I'm a big fan of the, of DARE, the Dictionary of yes. American Regional English. That's a nice companion piece to go with this one. You and Joan, she was episode number 19 for anyone who wants to play these two back to back. Dialect mapping. Let's kind of close on dialect mapping. You've done a lot of dialect mapping there in Washington State. The work that I have done in Washington State is perceptual dialect mapping. And so what I have done is created maps of Washingtonians' perceptions of where dialect variation exists. And this is really interesting from the local point of view, because locals have very clear ideas about where there is dialect variation in their region. But if you ask somebody from, you know, Ohio, how does language vary in Washington state, they'll tell you, well, it doesn't. So what I found is that Eastern and Western Washington are perceived as very different by the speakers in Washington state. And this is something that would be completely not visible to people outside of the state. They just wouldn't hear it, right? No. In terms of the way that they describe these dialects, it's certainly the case that, you know, Western Washington is perceived as kind of a Seattle in particular, sort of urban, whereas across the mountains on the eastern part of uh, Washington state, it's seen as kind of cowboy culture, cowboy language, hicks, because it is more rural than by comparison to Seattle. So, that's the kind of perceptual dialect mapping that I have done. It, it just occurred to me that, I mean, I've seen dialect maps, of course, uh, but most of my listeners may maybe never seen a dialect map. It looks so different from the political map, isn't it, with those nice north, south, east, west divisions between the states, and, and yet the dialect map psh, just completely blows those political boundaries out of the water, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it's so fascinating to look at, in particular, you know, the historical trajectory of dialects and in, in particular the United States. We see these dialect boundaries reflecting the English that was brought here by colonizers, you know, in the 16th and 17th century. You see these east to west dialect boundaries, like the lines traveling from east to west, reflecting that migration pattern of the people who use those varieties. I mean, the Scots-Irish is, is one of the biggest examples. We see so much Scots-Irish in sort of what we call the Midland region of the United States, because 
that's where the Scots Irish went, and they left their dialect there with us. And then we've got interesting regional uh, lexical terms, uh, items like faucet versus spigot, and perhaps more rarely tap for the same thing that delivers water. Yeah, and you know, I don't know what people would prefer out here or which one people use the most. It's an interesting question, and I'd probably turn to, well, DARE, but also the Linguist At Linguistic Atlas Project. Yes. I don't, I'm sure you're familiar with those. Yes. They might have details on those particular features. One interesting lexical item is the whole soda versus pop. And, and so I show this map to my students, and they just strongly disagree with the fact that the map shows pop as the common variant for carbonated beverage in Washington State, in particular Seattle. They swear up and down that they're soda users, not pop users. So. <laughs> yeah, there's cellar versus basement and cut off the light versus turn off the light and pails and buckets and fireflies and lightning bugs and frying pans and skillets. And uh, it's fascinating stuff, isn't it? Finally, let's close with the American Dialect Society's Word of the Year. Ta-da! You're on, Betsy Evans. The word of the year, which we voted on in early January, January 5th, the word that won is enshittification. Enshittification. Indeed. For American Dialect Society members, the word of the year is kind of fun, but also linguistic and also social. I think that that particular word resonated for all the people who are voting. There were almost 300 people voting. Let me just say what it means apparently was coined in 2023 and it was a way of describing how online platforms become worse and worse so you first sort of encounter an online platform and it's great and it's it's really easy to use and then over time you know maybe they change some things and then it becomes sort of corporate and it just becomes less and less user-friendly and then they start collecting more data from you and things like that and um, it becomes enshittified right it, exactly exactly and so it's sort of you know the, it reflects the gradual degradation of these platforms and i think for lots of people it reflects the gradual degradation of so many things resonated with people for that. So it's very useful because you could talk about it in a lot of contexts outside of online platforms. Yes. Um, and it's also quite memorable, you know, because of its sort of boundary pushing aspect of using taboo language to kind of show some sarcasm and sort of, yeah, pushing boundaries. And so I think, I think that those were some of the reasons why it um, was pretty attractive to, to yeah. the people who voted for it. And shitification, the American Dialect Society's word of the year. Betsy, thanks for joining me. It's been enlightening. And uh, good luck as you start your term of office. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Betsy Evans. To learn more about her and her work, go to paulmeyer.com, choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar, and click episode number 73. Don't forget to follow Paul My Dialect Services on Facebook and me on X at Dialect Paul. Join me again next month. My guest will be Dennis Preston, Betsy's colleague and mentor. Folk linguistics will be the topic. Sounds intriguing, doesn't it? Next time on In a Manner of Speaking.